Good morning. Well, I wanted to give you an update on my weight loss program. I've lost another sixteenth of a pound. So, uh, thank you. Thank you. But I have another problem. And it's been developing slowly over the years. Uh, we... It was, a, it was a long, dark night after church one Sunday afternoon, and we made our usual stop to a baker's restaurant. Remember this? Baker's drive throughs in California. How many of you have ever eaten there before? Good junk food, right? And uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but when you walk in the door, as you're heading toward the counter, if you look up, there's a, a television screen there, and it's, it's coming from behind you. Right. And as I was walking to the counter and I looked up, I came to a realization that I had never noticed before that this is getting a little thin up here. I could actually see it like a white spot. And I said, when did that happen? And my wife says, honey, it's been happening for a while. So uh, since then, you know, I've, I've watched with interest these uh, infomercials on proven two-step methods for hair regrowth, and uh, none of them seem to have worked. So uh, I think I'm going to buy some of that spray paint and, you know, spray the back of my head. And <laughs> No, I don't know if that stuff works or not, but... But uh, I do know that as we look at the Bible uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the great omission. And what I, what I really want to talk about is, you know, Bruce brought up our new members and he was talking about discipleship. And, uh, and his love for discipleship, he and I share that love. Uh, I know the first time I had coffee with him, we were like simpatico. And uh, it was like we could have just sat there and talked for hours about disciple making. Uh, and so what I want to show you this morning is a proven two-step method for disciple-making, if you will. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Uh, I don't think there's anybody in the room that would disagree with me that the Bible tells us we are to make disciples, right? You know, Matthew uh, 28, verses 18 and following... It's known as the Great Commission, and uh, it's rightly uh, entitled that. It is the Lord's sort of last marching orders before being taken up to heaven, if you will. And he said, go, therefore, um, and make disciples of all the nations. And then he gives you the way that you're supposed to do that, right? Two participles follow there, baptizing them. Uh, and teaching them, right? Baptizing and teaching. We are to make disciples. Uh, you could read this passage, having gone therefore, um, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in, to the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all whatever I commanded you. So baptizing and teaching are the ways that we're to make disciples, right? How many of you would disagree with that? Nobody. Nobody disagrees with me. Okay. Well, just look at the passage with me. And, and as you read 
intently and look at it and observe the passage, there is one thing that the church exists for, if you will, and that is to do what? It's to make disciples. It's to make disciples, right? How many of you would disagree with that? Now, here's where you're probably going to stone me and roll me down the hill, okay? But let me ask you a, a question, and this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. If this is what Christ told the church to do, this is the one thing that the church exists to do, and we're obedient Christians if we do this, how many of us have actually ever made a single disciple? Just let that sink in for a moment. We like to think of ourselves as obedient followers of Christ, right? We like to think of ourselves as disciples of Christ. But how many of us have reproduced ourselves in one person? And the reason I entitled this the great omission is for that purpose, because it seems to be that the church gets busy doing a lot of things, a lot of activities, but are we about the business of personally making followers of Christ? And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves today. Is this the great commission or is this the great omission? Now, turn in your Bibles to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what I'd like you to see this morning is that discipleship is not a new concept. It's been around for centuries. And uh, there's some things that we can learn from our Old Testament about the topic of discipleship. You know, before I became a believer, just an FYI, the word disciple always scared me a little bit. It sounded kind of cult-like, right? It does. It's like, are you a disciple of Christ? It just sounds a little weird, right? But it just means follower. It just means follower, learner, right? Are you a learner? Are you following the teachings of Christ? Have you been baptized into the name of Christ? And those are the questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning. Well, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, this passage is known as the great Shema of Israel. It comes from the very first word, Shema Israel, right? Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, it, it comes uh, from, from the law. This is the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. And uh, it was recited twice a day by devout Jewish believers, along with a couple of other passages, and you may want to reference these later. I won't have you turn there now. Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 to 21, and Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41. And this was essentially their confession of faith. Uh, they, were, they were to recite this a couple of times a day to remind themselves of what they were to do as followers of the one true God. So turn in your Bibles if you're not there. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, let me just say one thing before we get into the text, and that is implicit in the hearing. It's not just Shema as in hear with your ears. It's hear and do. Okay, it's always the case in the Old Testament. Hear and do. And you'll notice in uh, verse six, one. Now, this is the commandment, the statues and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Okay, verse three, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. So it's not just hearing and letting it bounce off your forehead. It's absorbing the truth and practicing the truth. And so this is very important for the nation of Israel. Remember, this is this is the new generation, the entire generation that had left Egypt and had been wandering in the wilderness. Remember, that generation died off, remember? And so here they are about to enter the promised land. They're on the plains of Moab. And, and Moses is giving them the second, the second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. It's, it's Deuteronomos. It means second law. Um, and here... This takes place about 3,500 years ago. And here's Moses. He's, he's telling them, listen, you've already heard this before, but I'm going to tell you again, just by way of reminder, this is what you need to do when you go into the land. Okay? And so today, uh, what I'm hoping we're going to see in this passage is two marks of what a faithful disciple looks like. Okay, so that we will know and do what the Lord expects from us. Remember, they're going into the land. They're going to have all these outside influences. They're going to, they're going to be tempted. They're going to fall away. They're going to fall into idolatry. They're going to intermarry with other tribes. They're going to not obey the Lord, and things are going to spiral down constantly. But if they would keep this before them, it would call their hearts back to God. So the first mark of a faithful disciple, this, as I said, proven biblical two-step method, is they are to love the Lord, right? A faithful disciple loves the Lord, verses 4 to 5. And this is not an unfamiliar uh, verse. We see this a lot in the New Testament, right? But uh, notice that he says here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your might. Right? Three times. Three times in the Hebrew, the word Yahweh appears there, the divine name. And it's specifically the object of the verb, you shall love. You shall love the Lord your God. So this is a call then to loyalty and faithfulness to the covenant-keeping God of Israel, right? This love for the Lord is seen in two ways in the text here. And we just want to point those out. 
Uh, first, their love is exclusive. You see that in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. There's no stative verbs in this passage, which makes it a little bit difficult to translate. Typically, what you see is like the New American Standard has put the word is in there, which really isn't in the text. But it says, um, you know, uh, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. The word is doesn't appear there. It just says Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. And so there's a lot of ways that this could be translated based on the context. And uh, some suggestions have been uh, Israel's one and only God. Uh, Zechariah 14.9 would be a reference to look at on that. Uh, Some have suggested Yahweh is the one, the only Yahweh. That's another possibility. Uh, As I said, the New American Standard translates it. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one, focusing more on his person or his nature, right? He's three in one, and we've heard that used as a defense of the Trinity, right? But based on the context, I'd like to suggest to you another possibility. And that is Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And the reason why I favor this translation is because, again, having just come from Egypt after all these years in idolatry and... Here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses is up receiving the law and he gives it to the he comes down the mountain to give it to the people. And what are they doing? Right. They're partying. They're worshiping a golden calf already on their wedding night. God is, in a sense, marrying his people in covenant and they cheat on him on their wedding night with a golden calf. So. Here we are again, we're, we're 40 years removed, 40 years later, we're, we're sitting on the plains of Moab, we're ready to take the land, to possess it, and God is reminding them, I am your God. Yahweh alone is your God, and you must worship me exclusively. Joshua 24, verses 14 to 15, he says, Put away the gods which your fathers served. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. And we come to the New Testament, the Apostle John said it this way, 1 John 5, 20 to 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. So what's the application for us today, right? What's the application? Well, it's simple. There is one and only God. There is only one God. And he is presented to us in the Bible in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we are to worship him exclusively, exclusively. 
Protect yourself. Guard yourself from idols. We'll talk more about this idea of idolatry in a little bit, but, but the point is you cannot make disciples unless you yourself are a disciple of the one true God. Right? You cannot make little followers if you are not a follower. I suppose you can if you have kids, but that's not what the church was called to, right? Jesus did not say go and reproduce and have offspring so that we can populate the church with children. He said go into all the nations and make disciples, right? So exclusivity is the idea here. You show your love to God by worshiping him exclusively. Secondly, their love is exhaustive. A faithful disciple's love is exhaustive. Verse 5. Love is the imperative or the command here. You shall love the Lord your God. And in three areas in particular, you shall love him. And importantly, I, I want to point out that the language goes from group to individual here. Okay? So I'm speaking to a crowd, but I'm speaking to you individually. You need to love the Lord. And three times the word all is used in this verse. Uh, and it covers really every aspect of a person's being, if you will. It's the, it's the material and the immaterial, the, the, the body and the soul, if you will. All of it should be committed to God. The first two aspects are nouns. The last one is actually an adverb. And it says, you shall love the Lord with all of your heart. That is the word levav or lev in Hebrew. And the idea is that it's the mission control center of the man. It's the, it's the symbol for the focus of his life. It almost always relates to the innermost part of the man, not the blood pumping organ in his chest, right? It's, if I could say it this way, it's the will and the affections of the man or woman. I say man generically, but, but it's, it's your affections. What do you desire? What do you crave? What do you want? What drives you in life? That is your heart. And he says, you shall love the Lord with all of your soul. Nefesh in Hebrew, and the idea is a living being or a soul. It's, it's, it's a person's total nature. It's, it's not just what he has, it's what he is. A person doesn't have a soul, they don't have a nefesh, they are a soul. Does it make sense? You know, in the old days, when the, like when the Titanic went down, they used to say how many souls were lost, Right? I think this is important because it's good to see people not as people, but as souls. And every soul is unique in itself, right? I mean, somebody who's diseased, somebody who's homeless, somebody who's a criminal, why should, how can we show love to those people? Because they're souls, right? There's a soul there. And that soul needs to be made right with its creator. 
Thirdly, you shall love the Lord with all of your might. Meodka in the Hebrew. And the idea here is actually, as I said, it's an adverb. It's literally very, very much. So you're supposed to love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your very, very much. Interesting, huh? Uh, I think in the vernacular, we could say your totality of your person with everything you've got. I guess that's the idea, right? Love the Lord with everything you got. It's interesting because Meotka stands out here because heart and soul usually appear together in the Old Testament as a word pair. Uh, you could look right over at uh, chapter 10 and verse 12 to reference that. They usually show up as a word pair, which in Hebrew, when they do that, it sets off the third word. So, so and, and usually in Hebrew, when they pile up terms like this three times, with all of your, with all of your, with all of your, it means everything, right? It's not, it's not just a few things. It's everything you've got belongs to the Lord, it's supposed to be exhaustive worship. Not just a little bit. Not just, okay, life goes on as usual, and now I'm going to try to figure out where to fit in God in the rest of my life. Right? It's God owns my whole life. He owns it all. Now, Jesus was asked... In the New Testament, what is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus? And he responded with this. And he added to it, secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. He says on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Interesting. Turn over to Mark 12 with me real quick just to keep you awake. Mark chapter 12. And uh, look at verse 28. This is one of the challenges in Mark where the scribes and the Pharisees are coming at him trying to disqualify him. And so one of the scribes uh, came to arguing and recognizing he had answered them well, asked him, what's the greatest, uh, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost of all is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Notice how they translated it there. Right? Is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said, right, teacher, you have truly stated he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, <laughs> no more questions came. You know, it's an interesting thing. There's only one other place in the Old Testament where these three words, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, show up in the Old Testament together. 
And that's in 2 Kings 23:25, And it's in reference to Josiah the king. Now, we know Josiah, right? He was one of the good kings of Israel. By the way, uh, a little acronym or a little memory device, whatever you want to call it, uh, 192008. 192008. You should memorize that. How many good kings? Uh, how many kings were there in the north? 19. How many kings in the south? 20. How many good kings in the north? Zero. How many good kings in the south? Eight. Josiah was one of the good kings of Israel. One of the only good kings. And when he was evaluated, he was following the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. So let me ask you, how, how exhaustive is your love for God this morning? Don't you hate those kind of questions? What's he doing asking me that? I hate those kind of questions, but... But it's, I'm not asking you to answer it here. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to search your own heart and say, as I look, and I have to ask myself these questions before I ever get up here and ask you, by the way. But how exhaustive is my love for the Lord? Am I all in? Are you all in? You know, Bruce, uh, Bruce can back me up on this. Did you know that all biblical counseling for any sin problem boils down at a fundamental level to one thing? It's a worship problem. It's a worship problem. It's a, it's a failure to worship God exclusively and exhaustively. At its most basic level, all sin problems, all biblical counseling issues fall under that umbrella. You are worshiping the wrong thing. You need to put that away, put it off, renew your mind, and put on worship of the truth. Right? It's a worship problem. You know, I I told you, put away idols, right? Colossians chapter 3. And you think, uh, well, I'm not falling down and worshiping a golden calf. But but look at Colossians chapter 3. This is interesting. Verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to what? Idolatry. You don't have to fall down and worship a calf. You know, your immorality, your impurity, your your lustful desires, your greed. That's idolatry. It's a worship problem. So the way to fix it is to worship the Lord, to love the Lord exclusively 
and exhaustively. Give yourself to Him, not to these other things that would pull you away from Him. You know, it's hard to preach sometimes because there's so much more that could be said, but you can't bring it all to the table, right? So we have to move on. Mark number two of a faithful disciple is that they live the Word. They love the Lord and they live the Word. Verses 6 to 9. These words which I am commanding you today. Moses is very emphatic here. It literally reads, the words, the these ones, the ones which I am commanding you today. (laughs) Uh, Listen, whatever you're hearing me say to you right now is what you're supposed to be doing. As I told you, the, the book of Deuteronomy is comprised actually of three sermons. And this falls into the second sermon, if you will. Uh, and it's, it's Moses is emphasizing here the Word of God. He's emphasizing their, their need to live the Word of God in the land. Love the Lord and live these words which I am giving you today. In other words, you could say it shifts from the the object of their love, that is God, to the subject of their instruction, which is the Word of God. These are their marching orders. These are what they're supposed to do once they get in the land. And living the Word is seen in three ways. You see it there on your handout. Uh, Verse 6, first, by their meditation upon the Word in their heart. And notice it does not say to keep them on your mind. Think about them all day. There's a a difference in meditation. It, It focuses on the heart. It focuses on the affections. We've already said that the heart is the seat of of the will, the emotions, the mission control center of the person, the affections, if you will. It's the, the innermost part of the man. You're supposed to meditate on the Word, to fall in love with the Word of God, if you will. It should, it should affect your will. It should affect change. It should affect worship and lifestyle pattern changes. The more you focus on the Word of God, it's like the, it's like the great... Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Solvent. It's like the great solvent, right? It's like a swimming pool, right? If you, if you pour in a little bit of a chemical and stir it up, right, you, you won't taste it in the water. But if you pour in a lot, you taste it more, right? Well, water is the universal solvent. Well, for Christians, the Bible is the universal solvent. If you want to push out sin in your life, if you want to get rid of sin and you want to think more godly and you want to act more godly, then you have to saturate your mind and, in a sense, push out sin with the Word of God. It's the only way you're going to overcome the sin nature. You have to, you have to water it down with the Word of God. So the Word of God is to be on their heart all 
the time. Look over at uh, chapter 5, verse 29. And this is, if you want to circle a verse in your Old Testament, circle this one. Because this is God's desire for the nation of Israel. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. I just wish they would love me the way they're supposed to. Right? And we know, reading our Old Testament, that they're going to fail miserably at this. We know once they get into the land, they're going to make all kind of bozo mistakes. They are going to sin. They are going to intermarry. They are going to just fail left and right. And ultimately, we're going to get to the point where if you can't obey with the hearts that you have, then I'm going to have to give you a new covenant where I replace those hearts. So that you will finally be able to obey me. And one author said this, this was to be an affair of the heart, not merely the memory. So if you're teaching your children Bible memorization, that's great. But what does it mean to hide the word in their heart? It means you're teaching them to love the word of God, to know what it means and to love it. Not just memorize it. You know, the Bible is God's self-disclosure. It is Him revealing Himself. There's a lot of historical fact in there. There's a lot of other, if you will, subplots going on. But essentially, that's what the Bible is there for. That we would know God... And know what he wants from us. And at this point, I'd just like to say that education does not equal morality. In other words, Bible knowledge doesn't necessarily equal right behavior. You know what I'm saying? You can know the Bible backward and forward, but still live in a moral life. But if you know the Word, you meditate on the Word, you love God, how's that going to affect how you live? Right? There's a difference. There's a difference. The Bible needs to become near and dear to your heart. The Apostle Paul over in Colossians 3.16, he said, Let the Word of God richly dwell within you. I think that's the idea. So we've been given a new heart. We are here on the other side of the new covenant, right? We've been given a new heart, meaning new affections. By the Spirit's work. So we not only have the ability to know God and the ability to love His Word and to have victory over sin and temptation, but He requires us to exercise that ability. 
We must love Him, and we must obey Him. I hate to labor the point, but instead of having life-dominating sin patterns in your life, you should have life-dominating word in your life, if I could say it that way. The Word of God should dominate your life. This is what God desires for His children. So first, a, a faithful disciple lives the Word of God by meditating upon it in their heart. Secondly, by their instruction of the Word to the next generation. Verse 7. You know, a faithful disciple, they recognize the absolute necessity of passing on the faith. What happens if we don't teach the Word of God to the next generation? It could be lost, beloved, just as quickly. Now, I'm going to, this is the way I think, you know, I think in outline form. Um, and so we kind of need to break in here a moment in the text and just look. There's a, there's a couple of ways that that instruction is to be given. And it says right here in the text, the first is diligently. You see that? You shall diligently teach them to your sons. These words which I am commanding you today, you shall do them, you shall meditate on them, and you shall diligently teach them to your sons. Right? Diligently. That requires effort. It's restated again over in 1119. And this is an appeal to the will. Right? The intensive form of the verb here carries the idea of, uh, you could say, engraving in metal or, or teaching incisively or, or may even have the idea of repetition. But I think the point is, uh, you know, it's like a hammer drill. You drill it into them. Over and over and over again, the Word of God is to be diligently taught, drilled into the minds of the next generation. And, and, it, and again, it's not just memory. It's, it's teaching them to love God, not keep a set of rules. Right? The name of the Lord is what? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Right? The Bible is the self-disclosure of God. What are we supposed to teach our children about God? Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. No. Love God. Because he has first loved you. Right? It's relationship. It's not rules. And I think this is really the crux of the issue here. You know, the, the nation of Israel failed miserably at this task. You know, we read about Josiah in the book of Kings, but as you do a quick read-through of the book of Kings, you find that one king did more evil in the sight of the Lord than his father did, or all who were before him. Over and over, it's sad. 
It's sad to see they just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And then, miraculously, somehow you get somebody like Josiah that pops up. Where did he come from? Well, he was related to Hezekiah. Well, Hezekiah was a faithful man, right? The point is, if you get nothing else I say today, get this. It's not enough just to disciple the next generation. We need to make them disciple makers. You understand what I mean? You don't just pass on the faith. You pass on a love for making little disciples. Right, Bruce? <laughs> you have to build into people a love for, for making little disciples. Right? I cook when I have to, but I'm a horrible cook. And I hate cooking. I can't time everything, and, and I, I hate putting the food away, the leftovers. I can never find room in the refrigerator. I hate it. Nobody ever taught me to love cooking. I do it because I have to. And a lot of the time I don't do it at all. (laughs) But if you build into somebody a love for cooking, they're going to pass on that love, right? They're going to pass on that love to somebody else. It's just a picture. I don't know if you've been listening or reading the news, but many of you may have heard of Joshua Harris. I was saddened to learn about this the other day. The man who wrote, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, has now repudiated the faith. He says he's no longer a Christian, and he has walked away from the church, and he has apologized uh, publicly to the LGBT community. Um And my heart broke for this man. My heart broke for him. Not only because he's walked away from his only hope, but because what has he been doing for his whole life pretending to be something he's not? You know, to be a a faithful disciple, there's there's just two marks. It's, It's not... Rocket surgery, right? <laughs> it's, it's loving the Lord and living the Word. And somewhere along the way, this man went off the tracks. And nobody saw it? Nobody saw it coming? I find that hard to believe. We need to be diligent. The point is diligence. And constant, constantly, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. This is kind of the when and where of the teaching diligently, if you will. You drill it into them all the time and everywhere. In the, how do you say that word? Milu, milu, milu of life. Whatever, as you're going along life. (laughs) It's actually a series of four infinitives, which are broken into two pairs. You'll see that. It's uh, when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, 
when you lie down, when you rise up. It's kind of the inside, outside, upside down, right? Inside, outside, upside down. Let me ask you this. Is there any place or time when you should not be discipling? That was not a rhetorical question. You can answer that one. It's all the time. It's constant. Doesn't this sound more like your cell phone usage? Think about it. When you rise up, when you lie down, right? When you sit in the house, when you walk by the way. I saw a guy riding a skateboard into traffic the wrong direction on his cell phone. (laughs) That's a commitment. (laughs) Beloved, we need to cease the distractions. And I, I, I'm again, I'm preaching to myself on this one. Fingers pointing inward, right? We need to limit the distractions. If we are going to be effective disciple makers, this cannot describe our cell phone usage. This needs to describe our disciple making. And for you with young ones, I got to tell you, I mean, I sit in restaurants and I watch children doing all kind of stuff while the parents are on their phones. You've got to minimize the distractions and talk to your children. Put the phones down. This is, this is a call to indoctrination in the faith. I know that's a scary word, but that's what it is. It's indoctrination. It should occupy conversation around the breakfast table, in the car, in the family room, at the dinner table, when you're out for walks, when you're out and about shopping, all the time. All the time. You're talking about God and what He's doing in your lives. And I'm just going to be frank, if we have got to take seriously the charge to pass on the Word of God to the next generation, or we can claim no obedience to the Great Commission. This assumes also that we know the Word of God, right? How can you pass on the Word of God if you don't know the Word of God? So you have to know it. You have to meditate on it. You have to love it. You have to pass it on. Say one last thing here. By the way, this is not just passing on the Word of God as recorded history. Uh, This is the inerrant the infallible, the authoritative, the inspired Word of God that we're talking about here. This is what we're supposed to instruct. This is what we're supposed to teach, not some fragmented, watered-down, errant view of the Scriptures. All Scripture is profitable, right? For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? 
so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. A faithful disciple lives the word by meditating upon it in their heart, by instructing it to the next generation, and third, by their communication of it in the community. Verses 8 to 9, You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So uh, a faithful disciple plants their flag and, and lets people know of their allegiance to God. This is restated over in eleven eighteen to 20. Listen, it's, it's on the doorposts of your house. You're walking around with this little container on your forehead that has the Word of God in it, uh, we could say we'd tattoo it to our eyelids, right? <laughs> but that's the idea. I mean, the Jews took this literally. They, they literally took the Word of God and, and wrote it out on parchment and stuffed it in a little scroll and put it on their foreheads. They were called frontlets or phylacteries. Sometimes on the forehead, sometimes on the arm. But they walked around with them to let people know in the community that they were faithful followers of God. And the same can be said for the doorposts of the house and on your gates. If you've ever walked into a Jewish household, you see the little cylinder nailed to the door jam, right? And as they walk into the house, they kiss, they kiss it as they, as they walk into the house. They let people know, people that are coming over for a Sabbath pot roast, they know where they stand with God. They were visible signs to the community of a family's allegiance to the covenant God of Israel. So what, what can we say, right? Are, are we afraid now to publicly identify with Christ? Have we been put so back on our heels that we're afraid to let people know we're Christians? What are we, afraid we're going to get sued? Afraid we're going to lose our house or we might make somebody angry at us? I don't know, folks. I, I, you know, I struggle with this. We're not being thrown into the lions, right? We're not being put on stakes at night to light, uh, you know, the Caesar's garden. We haven't shed blood So we make a few people mad at us. But we've got to take a stand for Christ. People got to know where we stand. Right? Does the Word of God set the parameters under which you operate? I mean, do people around you know about your commitment to the Word of God? Is your faith a secret? Do you blend in nicely with society? Do people know you're a Christian? I'm just going to go on a little excursus here, a little off the tracks, but, you know, I like hanging around with other believers. I, I like it a lot. You guys are nice. And you feed me good, and so I like that. But if we're always around other believers, how are unbelievers ever going to hear the gospel? See, this is what I mean about being intentional 
Uh, we have to be intentional about our time commitments. We have to make time for those around us. We have to build bridges into the community. We have to reach our neighbors. Invite them over to dinner or dessert or invite a coworker over. Build bridges to disciple making, right? You, you just you can't make disciples if you never communicate with people outside the church. Making means making, right? It doesn't say go into all the nations and disciple existing believers. Right? Making means making. It means sharing your faith, winning people to Christ, and discipling them in that faith. By the way, nobody is ever going to come to faith observing your lifestyle. Let's just say that right now. The Bible will not let us off the hook that easy. Jesus lived a perfect life, right? (laughs) And they killed him for it. Nobody is ever going to come to faith. It's a nice try, but you have to speak for Christ. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? Right? You know it. You have to speak. You have to share your faith. Faith comes by hearing, not by watching. And how will they hear if you don't speak? How will disciples be made if we don't make them? It's it's not enough just to disciple people in the church. Simple math will tell us that We'll run out of people to make, right? We'll run out of people. And it it can't just be our own children. We can't just disciple our own children. We need to make disciples. And that means engaging with this community. Talking to people who don't know Christ, instructing them in the faith, That's how we live out the word, by communicating it in the community. We meditate upon it in our heart. We instruct it to the next generation. We communicate it with those around us. If you want to be considered a faithful disciple, these are two marks. This is the Bible's two-step proven approach, right? You love the Lord and you live the word. In doing these two things, you will not only have two identifiable marks that you are a faithful disciple of Christ and of the one true God, but you will be in obedience to God. You can honestly say, I'm obeying God. God has commanded us to make disciples of all the nations. Right? Got to start with us. Got to start with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. It really is a roadmap for us, Father. Uh, 
It teaches us who you are and what your desires for our life are. It teaches us what you expect as your children. And so, as children, as those who have now received an inheritance or have an inheritance waiting for us in glory, as those who have received forgiveness, as those who have been redeemed and have the Spirit indwelling them, Father, we want to be faithful with what we've been given. Please cause your Spirit to energize us and to motivate us to share our faith. For we were once lost, but now we've been found. We were once condemned, but now we stand free. We were once hopeless, but now we have hope. Father, may we share that truth with those around us that we might be called faithful disciples and followers of Christ. It's for his name that we pray. Amen.